Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello Joe. Hello. Uh, Seb and I were joined today by Michael Bailey, Norwich City football writer extraordinaire, wonderful friend of the podcast, been on once before, lovely chap. And we talked to him all about Norwich City. Now, of course, uh, we anticipate, and I think Michael accepts too, that even though it's not mathematic yet, uh, mathematic? That's not a word, is it? Anyway, even if it's not mathematic yet, Norwich are probably going to be relegated to the championship. What a shame. It is actually a shame. I'm saying it like that's sarcastic, but it's not. But anyway, we tried to be optimistic on today's podcast because we love Norwich. Uh, Seb, what were we optimistic about? We're very optimistic about Todd Cantwell. In fact, it almost mm. became a Todd Cantwell podcast at one point. Um, we got about sort of 10 Wouldn't mind minutes that. in. Wouldn't mind that because he's a really interesting guy. Um, but we did Todd and did a few bits on the squad's shortcomings this season, on a few of the uh, lone anomalies which have bounced in and out of the club, um, and a few next steps. And we, we did try and try, try and be optimistic. I mean, every time you said that's a shame during the pod, it did sound sarcastic. I mean, I don't I know. Can't help it. Worth you know, every time you, you, you reach for sincerity, you just don't seem to have that gear in your personality. I don't know where it is. I'm not sure where to look. Hey, you mentioned next steps there, though, Seb. Do you know what the listener's next step should be? Tell me. To sign up to The Athletic by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, uh, where you can find all sorts of fantastic football articles. If you're a Norwich fan listening to this, uh, I'm sure you're probably already aware of Michael's writing, but it really, really is very, very good. Um, so you can get a 30-day free trial by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to go and check out Michael's writing, or indeed any of the other dedicated club journalists. Um, there's 10 other sports as well. One of them's MMA. Is that a sport? It probably is, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Seb, also one more thing. Did you know that we have a new producer? I do know that now. It's exciting. It makes me feel a little bit more important. Yeah, I feel quite a lot more important today as well. Adonis, is that your primary role here to make us feel more important? Looks like that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like it's just to be short and snappy. I don't know. Seem to be getting off to the wrong wrong foot here. Never mind. Anyway, we'll come back to Adonis on the the next episode and, and hear more words from him. But for the time being, we will leave you... In, uh, in the cool hands and the warm embrace of uh, Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey, I would like to start by asking you this question about the Norwich team, because uh, I've watched this Norwich team a lot this season. I watched them a lot last season as well, before they were promoted. And I think... The vast majority of the players in the in the first eleven, and also many of the squad players as well, they're excellent players. I look at them all, and I and I think you know you you would fit into this Premier League team. You're at Premier League quality. Um, am I a little hazy-eyed here? Or what what's happened? Why are Norwich in the position that they are, given the quality that they have on the pitch? Poor, what a question that is. I think um, <laughs> I mean they've definitely lost their way. Now I think you can look at that in terms of the psychology of it because. Certainly, if you take into account last season when they got promoted, once they got going, they didn't really have any proper major setbacks. Um, If they lost, they were always extenuating circumstances and nothing happened to really dent their confidence. And you're talking about Jamal Lewis, who'd only played for six months before that season. Max Ahrens had made his debut five games into that season. They, They were fearless youngsters who were just steamrolling it that the, the, the momentum was was remarkable and also very able players who um had the quality to kind of negate any 
you know psychological effects they would they would create a situation where it would reinforce their belief so it it didn't really matter that's that's very different at this level and uh, i think for, for norwich all those players have had to play at such a high a high level um for everything to go so well to compete the, the margins are quite small and so when things haven't gone well and i think that's why we haven't seen norwich uh, say equalize when they've gone behind or you know if they've just missed a few chances then that was kind of their opportunity gone and they found it so hard to get back into games and i think that's possibly symptomatic of that that sort of psychological damage if you like and, and the, the sort of intensity of the level that they're playing at now i think daniel farker has been very rigid and confident in how he's wanted to play the only times where he's kind of given up more of the ball willingly and wanted his side to sit deeper He's only really done it against the very elite sides. So if you're talking about coming up against, you know, teams like uh, Wolves and Crystal Palace and, and uh, maybe Burnley, this is how we're playing. We're going to go straight in and go ahead of it. And I don't know if that's because they beat Manchester City and there was an element of them thinking we are we can really do this at this level. But and it's really hard because you're talking about a, a, a sort of a, a compromise over philosophy at that point. But maybe too often Norwich have believed that they would be good enough to be entirely on the front foot and and then it just has come undone and then you tie that into the fact that they haven't been able to get themselves back into games those two elements together a, a, a bit of a toxic uh, mix they have had injuries and I think they've been really unsettled at the back which which hasn't helped certainly in central defense but then ultimately it's been at the other end of the pitch and, and the lack of scoring goals and taking chances and a over-reliance on Temu Bukki because these wonderfully talented midfielders and forwards behind them they just haven't chipped in with 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 goals um and that's been very curious i mean so someone like marcus steeperman who was so important last season just has not stepped up and to be honest that kind of looked an issue from the first game against liverpool on the opening night of the season mm. and even someone like emmy buendia who has created an amazing amount of chances uh, hasn't got a goal to himself so um it's probably an you know a, a lot of players stepping up to a new level for the first time they there's so many of them are, are phenomenally talented and actually so many of them if you put them individually in a more established side i think they would look the part but with them all being together and again you know to be fair to daniel as well he's he has only um managed uh, a a senior first team really at, at this kind of level for as long as he's been at norwich before that Lipstadt but in between he was at Dortmund too so that that was you know playing basically 23s football in 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 the third tier of, of German football so I think um an element of his his own learning and dealing with with the situations has has had to come into it when you talk about a level like the Premier League which is obviously um it, the, the difference between this and the championship it gets said a lot but that's because it's <laughs> it's true and um all of that is kind of factored into to where where Norwich are and it's it's been a, a sorry old few weeks to be honest <laughs> sorry no I think I think that's true I mean I was just thinking about relegation uh potentially relegation bound teams at the moment I think it's fair to say Aston Villa have at least three players you would consider you know good Premier League players in, in Jack Grealish and an excellent one perhaps Tyrone Mings as well but with Norwich I mean you mentioned Buendia and Stieperman there already add to that you know Godfrey Lewis Aarons and and Pukki and and a player I'd like to talk to you about now as well, um, Todd Cantwell. I mean, those are all players, as you say, that you feel like if they were in other Premier League teams, they'd be doing exceptionally well. Uh, in the case of Todd Cantwell, 
we'd love to get a sense of who he is as a player and and as a person because he's he's captured the imagination I think this season in the Premier League and there is talk around whether Norwich uh, can or keep him or not after the summer but we'd love to get a sense from you of uh, of who he is as a as a person and a player. Todd is Todd is is a bit different to be honest. I I, I really like him. Um, he's he's articulate. He's incredibly strong-willed and. Um, I remember speaking to one of the guys on on our on the ball podcast about how um, it sort of clicked when he got to sixteen, and there was this drive and focus in him that they hadn't really seen before. I think all all of his time at Norwich, from from joining the academy at the age of ten, I think everyone thought that they had a, a special talent. But but then so much of that is about their attitude and about how they develop, and there were constant question marks over whether Todd would be would be strong enough for what might be to come which is I suppose that that comes up in a debate with so many so many players but um I think uh Norwich probably had him earmarked and and possibly at times that that protected him a a little bit but he still had to kind of fight so hard through each of those stages and and his own self-belief is phenomenal I mean I heard one story that Norwich Norwich sold James Madison, who was obviously phenomenal talent in Daniel Farker's first season. Um, Norwich sold him for a record sale for the club. And no one who watched James Madison that year in the championship would have had any doubts that he would go on and, and show what he could do in the Premier League. And that's that's what he's done. And, you know, Todd Cantwell wanders into Daniel Farker's uh, office, I think, before the next season and says, look, I'll, I'll fill those boots. I'm good enough. You don't need to go and replace James. I'll, I'll do that. At that point, he he played I think extra time in a third round FA Cup replay at Chelsea <laughs> and that was it and I think he, even for Daniel Farker was probably looking at, at that and thinking okay well I completely disagree with you Todd but I, I appreciate the fact that you're sat here and, and telling me this and it was after that it was then the second half of that that next season that Todd went to Fortuna Sittard in the uh, Dutch second division and and helped them get promoted and even now I look back at that you know he the fans loved him there. He made a real impact. I, I think he was a big he was a big favourite. They'd have had him back in in a heartbeat in the in the Dutch top flight. But he didn't play that many games. He only scored a hatful of goals. And and you, you sort of look at the raw stats and you're like, well, it wasn't much to judge anything on. And I have to say, even in the Championship last year, which was a was a big step for Todd. There were there were a handful of games later on in that season where Emmy Buendia was suspended for um, a sending off against QPR and. and Daniel, who, in fairness, since since Todd came back from Holland, I think Daniel's always trusted in Todd, certainly this year. Um, but even then, and so he he put him in in place of Emmy, and and Todd did okay. But almost the the fact of him being a, a homegrown player put a lot of pressure on him from the fans, and the fans weren't really were, were giving him stick for, and probably harshly so, because it was just the fact he wasn't quite at Emmy's level at that point. And I find it, I, I have to say that. From the very moment of pre-season this summer, he came in and you watched him play. I remember watching him play, especially at Atalanta, I think, was was the friendly. Norwich lost 4-1. They won them up in that game. And and I hate pre-season. I hate pre-season friendlies. You can't judge anything on them generally. But you, mm. I looked at Todd and just thought, wow, you I don't know what switched here, but you, you look at a different level. And it's remarkable then this season, and I think probably the most impressive thing now is that I'm watching Todd play in these in these weeks. Norwich look a little bit lost here and there. It's really difficult. 
but Todd is just continuing to grow into the surroundings and players who looked a long way ahead of him 12 months ago, they're, they're, they're struggling to keep up with him at the moment. Um, and I think, again, someone at the club told me several months ago, they said, um, I, I can't believe what Todd is doing now, um, but I'm now not going to predict what happens in the future because he's already surprised me. And I honestly think if you look at what he does and how he goes about, how he goes about things, he could he could probably get to any level and, and just keep surprising us because it's it's phenomenal. And so I think he's almost at a level now where you think, well, either Norwich somehow keep hold of him and uh, can build around him next year if they get and when they get relegated or or someone's going to come in and take him away but i think that all says so much about his own drive and personality i think he's a, he, he he's a he's a likable guy he's intelligent and he's articulate but he also has an unnerving um, belief in, in what he can do michael can i ask about his family you wrote a wonderful piece back in the autumn um, about his ascent through the academy. And he seems to come from, um, well, a small army of ex-professional players. I think his, um, <laughs> his grandmother used to um, used to play professionally during the years when uh, women's football was banned. Is that right? Uh, that is right, yes. And um, uh, Todd's sister, so Todd is the youngest of three. Um, Jordan was the eldest. And he was at Norwich's academy um, bef- before Todd. Um, a couple of years, I think, I think he's older. I might have to remind myself there, but I think he left the academy two years before Todd joined, and that was one of the reasons why his parent, Todd's parents, were quite wary of allowing Todd to go into the academy because I think they there were things with Jordan's progress, and maybe they just were trying to work out if it was worth it or not. And because of the heartache, and I think Jordan found it very difficult when he when he came out of the academy. Um, Amber's incredibly proud of what her her nan did, and and. And she too played for Norwich, went through their player development centres, and I think she's currently at Cambridge United. Um, and I think the the three of them have had um, lots of fun um, playing in the kitchen. And <laughs> sounds like they all picked up some quite nasty injuries, sort of throwing each other against cupboards or what have you. But uh, I think that's a really interesting dynamic with with so many footballers in terms of how they sort of play with older siblings and things like that in terms of their their robustness almost and resilience but it's yeah it's 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 a, re- a remarkable sort of football heritage and I think that that is the thing with Todd you can there are there are things he does and there are things people spotted in him when he was eight seven that you just can't coach you just have this child here I remember one of his first coaches he was seven or eight and they were like he went down came for the first session and you knew within an hour that he was something special I mean that you all you're doing then is kind of trying to bring it out and develop it on, I suppose, and, and, and make sure it doesn't get lost in other things. So that family heritage is obviously a, a big part of, of Todd. And they're a really close family, actually. So it's not just um, it's not just lip service. I think I think because they're so tight, they they know exactly where their their family heritage is. And I think it, it does mean a lot to all of them. I think his brother referred to them as a Norfolk footballing dynasty. Which is, uh, that's, uh, that's very bold. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. I mean, he comes across as quite a, a quirky guy. And you'll have, um, you'll have encountered him uh, in the mix zone this season after quite a few bad results. What's he been like personality-wise during the kind of the, the peaks and troughs of Norwich season? Because that's usually quite an interesting indicator. I remember I spoke to him about how after, it was New Year's, New Year's Day, I think, Crystal Palace. Um, he scored in that game really early on. Um, kind of the story of Norwich's season. They conceded an, an equaliser thanks to a marginal VAR offside call. Um, mm. 
going against them with about four minutes to go and it was like I think Palace's only shot on target so pretty dismal afternoon way to start the year and um, I remember asking him in that game about look, how how are you going to stop people getting distracted by their own futures um, especially youngsters like himself and obviously Max Max Aarons Jamal Lewis all of these guys Emmy Buendia and um, his answer was really was really focused and he obviously you in my position and you guys will know this as well I'm sure but you, you you speak to someone you kind of know when they're just rattling off what they know they need to say there was something really genuine in, in how how Todd was was saying it and in terms of how together they were and how they kind of knew they were all tied into each other's fate and he is very good at putting across his his thoughts and he he is really grounded and and you that kind of almost contradicts I always think with his with his public image because I think I made a joke about one of his Instagram tweets because it was some um, some sort of forlorn expression on his face and he put underneath <laughs> and put underneath it as the caption um, J-U-S me as in you know it was just me just me and I was like what, what Jew me as in an orange I didn't know and it's just like there's just something a, a bit a bit off that kilter a deliberately old man response to that Michael how <laughs> dare you yeah. you yeah. people have a culture too <laughs> that's for the kids that one um, I've got two kids now you know I am an, by default an old man but, you're um, allowed to say things like that now yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I just there is that confliction because he 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 is a really grounded, homely guy, and and how his career develops will be really interesting with that because the the, the persona that almost comes out is is very different, and he he is a, a very marketable asset. I, I think you know when it comes to the summer, I think he will be one who will attract big bids because of sort of what he is and and how he goes how he goes about things as well. But uh, the other thing about that conversation in the mix zone was I then tried to, he, he made a point about um, Timu Puki and I'm, I, forgive me, I can't exactly remember it was, but I I think uh, he made something about how Timu was, was helping them all out. And I asked him for, for it to expand on it because he, you know, don't tell me stuff like that without giving me examples, please, Todd. <laughs> and he kind of rolled his eyes and went, oh, do I have to? And he, he was he was looking to uh, the press assistant there, Charlotte, to just can the interview there, <laughs> but she didn't. So I think I, I, he, I think there's a bit, there's a bit of him who, I think he kind of knows where he is, but he, he's, um, he's also, he's respectful in that way. And I think uh, he, I think he's got a lot of tools that will, that will see him okay, regardless of what he goes through. Yeah, he only has a certain amount of time for Michael Bailey. I like that about a person. Um, let's let's talk about <laughs> recruitment now, uh, because Stuart Webber, who incidentally was on the Onstein and Chapman podcast this week, which is totally worth a listen. Um, Stuart Webber, rightly praised for his work. Uh, his name comes up uh, often in conversations around sporting director vacancies at bigger clubs. Uh, and I suppose his, his name is known in a way that, that many sporting directors' names aren't. Um, so that, there's something interesting to reflect on there. But he does feel a little bit as if this team was left short of what it needed for the season. And a couple of examples of that. Uh, Ibrahim Amadou was a loan deal, obviously cut short because he wanted to return to Spain. We had Dermic on a free transfer from Gladbach, but not a huge number of starts. Um, and I think one goal. And Patrick Roberts, who played 20 minutes before terminating his loan and going down a division. Now, Seb wrote these notes and Seb says to me, one loanee leaving early is just one of those things. It happens, but two... Hmm. You can expand on that, Michael. Especially when I think they're pretty much your only two. Uh, the third one yeah. was Ralph Farman. I think there were three. So Ralph Farman, the goalkeeper, also um, left Norwich from a season's loan in Schalke 
he left in March, I think. It was literally just before uh, suspension. Did he get Michael? Uh, or did he... Um... Uh, he did get injured earlier in the season. Yeah. He did, yeah. He basically had a really good opportunity because Krull was uh, Tim Krull was out and then he pulled his groin. And I think he'd done his groin a, a week or so before, so they kind of raced him back fit. He wasn't fit. And the funny thing is, if he'd have been fit, played when Krull was injured, you just don't know how that might have gone. He could have kept a clean yeah. sheet and then kept the kept the job, kept the position yeah. for the rest of the season. But in the end, it comes to March. His wife or partner is called Norwich uh, not the best place to find themselves living and uh, he ends up going to Norway <laughs> to try and play some games much better certainly before much football better plan- and then obviously football stops um so quite an interesting season for Ralph but that's you know three loans where you could say they didn't they didn't work and a fair amount of money in that as well for, for Norwich I think um to be fair to Stuart Weber he has already basically intimated that he owes Daniel an apology for the recruitment in the summer yeah uh, so I think he's well aware well, that they, they didn't get it right. And I think when this season is done and dusted, that theme will come up uh, come up a fair bit. How much of that comes from the top, though, Michael? Because, I mean, also we, we've heard a lot about Norwich, either sensibly or not sensibly, depending on how you look at it, not wanting to spend a lot of money upon promotion to the Premier League. So h- how much of that is within his control or not? Yeah, I, I think this is, this is a philosophical debate for Norwich to deal with. And <laughs> right. Literally, I've just come out of... Uh, Daniel Farker's uh, virtual press conference almost having that conversation with him because Stuart Webber is, is has the job he has n- now because he has kind of built clubs without any money or built squads without that kind of influence I mean well Norwich and Huddersfield anyway and um, I think he will have gone into last summer and I think even he so the first summer where he's had to try and build a Premier League squad and all of a sudden the players you want to recruit everyone's asking for 10 million quid more because you're a Premier League club. Um, yeah. Norwich don't have that money still, um, mainly because they use that money to pay off a, you know, pay off the training ground money that they bought, or they've got you know 15 million quid's worth of bonuses they've got to pay off, or whichever, blah blah blah. Still stuff to cover, and every other Premier League club probably has extra money coming in, and Norwich are not. They, they, there is no money other than what they earn from their match days and their sales and um, their TV revenue. So I think even he found in the summer, it's like, oh God, this is going to be really hard. <laughs> um, so then I think you end up getting into a position where some of the, if if I was to give my opinion on it, some of that summer recruitment probably was was a bit down the, the, the list in terms of what they wanted it to be. Josip Drumic arrives because you hope he can rediscover something he had a few years ago. It's a gamble. Then he doesn't. And you're like, well, okay, not much we can do about that now. Um, Ibrahim Amadou was was a little bit down the list, I think. It, he was a late signing as well, which kind of backs that up. And I don't think at any point Daniel Farker was in any way convinced about him being a midfielder, um, which I still think is was a, a bit of an issue. And I would have preferred to have seen something more flexible in from Daniel in that regard. You know, it's his decision and that went by the wayside. And to be honest, I, I think I have a feeling they got Patrick Roberts in and ultimately after a few weeks they thought we don't... Because Stuart likes Patrick a lot um, and I think he tried to sign him a few times before. So he'd actually managed to get him this time. But I, I think ultimately they probably looked at it and thought, I don't think you're going to be good enough for this level. And I think that's why we didn't actually really see him play. And that was kind of it, really, in terms of it. I mean, Sam Byram has obviously worked out as a success and 70, what was it, 750 grand, I think. So, you know, it's stuff like that. But is that really going to be enough to establish you in the Premier League when effectively Norwich put most of their eggs in the squad that they'd already built, 
making the step up quickly to the Premier League. Um, ironically, they started really well, but it was when those doubts and obstacles came in that they kind of lost their way and, and then it's very hard to sort of regain that. I mean, regarding Patrick Roberts, you say that Stuart Webber liked him and, and potentially tried to sign him elsewhere. If it, if you know, within two weeks of him arriving at Norwich, it's apparent that he can't play at this level. Is that not due diligence that should be done beforehand? Should we expect a sporting director to know that, or or, or am I being unfair? Well, I think I, I wouldn't say that after two weeks they thought he wasn't good enough. Um, I, I would guess I think he had he had an outing against Crawley where it was a bit in the cup. It was well Norwich were knocked out and I, I suppose that yeah. probably forms a slight opinion because obviously playing in a competitive game is different to to training I mean Norwich have a lot of co- had a lot of competition in that area so th- what they would also I imagine say is you know ultimately if you didn't make an impact it doesn't really matter because there were a lot right. of players there who played in the championship winning side the season before who were ahead of him and you know there would would have been enough competition so I think that that probably is then a different argument you know were Norwich recruiting better players than they already had to improve them or were they trying to support and supplement what they had was was Josip Drumic ever going to be someone who was going to suddenly usurp Timu Pukki I mean would you yeah. would you try and do that if your strikers just scored 29 goals in the championship the season before so I wonder if Norwich got a little bit caught in in maybe trying to build the squad but but not give the improvement in quality possibly um that they could maybe apart from Ibrahim Amadou because I think uh I think a better, more athletic shield in, in, of, the, of the back four was, was kind of the position I always wanted to see them improve in that and a bit of extra pace up top. Michael, can I just ask, you, you've just touched on it there, but knowing what you do now and having seen what you have over the last eight or nine months, if you were to go back to August, how would you, how would you re-equip this squad? Um, I'm going to ask you to, to speculate uh, in more detail than uh, a bit more pace up front. I'm going to make it more difficult for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is really fundamental. That's such a fundamental question because Norwich probably had about 30 million quid to spend, I guess. I'm, I'm, uh, so what do you do with that when you maybe not even that? Um, because some of that would have probably gone on the contract extensions. Yeah. So yeah. I think um, the, you know, Nor- Norwich only have one player without an outpace in their forward line, which is an El Hernandez, um, that that was an issue for me last year. So they, they definitely needed that. And I know they tried to sign um, Alexa Claude Maurice at the end of, of the window in the summer. So that told me they were trying quite hard, whether that was their first choice or a bit down the line, I don't know. But um, I think they were looking for that. And the fact they then didn't get that in the summer and then were kind of in a worse position come January. They probably thought better of spending the money, to be brutally honest. Um, so I think that 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 sort of uh, player with 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 more with more pace to get in behind and and to mix up the dynamic from the the intricate passing triangles and around the corners and the edge of the box and and playing quite narrow. I think because as we've seen, they they haven't really been able to use the fullbacks in the same way um, that they have that they obviously could in the, in the championship. So I think I think that and obviously Ibrahim Amadou wasn't the player they want, the, that Daniel Farker necessarily trusted in and wanted, but that that was exactly the player they needed. The, someone with greater energy and real sense of defensive responsibility, because I I think that happened too often in the Championship as, as well. That you know Daniel Daniel loves having um, ball playing, uh, sort of holding slightly deeper number sixes. Um, that use the ball really well because obviously you've got the ball all the time the opposition can't score but 
But as soon as they went up, Daniel was aware that they were probably having to give away, you know, 45 minutes every match without the ball regardless. And at that point, if you've got someone who's as neat on the ball as Tom Tribal trying to cover defensive spaces that is not really that as natural and he's is not as sharp at picking and sensing that danger, then you're in trouble. And I think uh, it was probably the right idea of what they needed, but not necessarily the right um, the right one because Daniel didn't trust them. I think you know, ultimately Norwich have basically had three centre-backs fit for about three weeks all season. Um, yeah. That is a major issue, <laughs> regardless of what you say. And yeah, well, on that note as well, can I ask you about Emi Buendia? Because when I watch Norwich, I always feel like he's wasted on the wing. I don't understand why he doesn't play behind Pookie more often. Is that because uh, they want more solidity in the midfield? Yeah, I, I almost asked him about it in a press conference because you mentioned that to me, Joe. And um, right. there was a bit, I think there was a bit ahead of the, was it the Everton game? No, I think it might have been the Manchester United game where I wondered if Emi was going to be playing off Temu because those two him and Pookie have such a good connection in terms of yeah. that being one of Norwich's primary supply lines I think Daniel generally plays a 4-2-3-1 or sort of variants mm. of that and he and he mentioned this as an answer actually to where Todd's best position is he I think he prefers the freedom that a kind of number 10 has if they start slightly wider um, now whether whether Emmy having that defensive responsibility helps him out, I don't know because it ends up picking up holes and you end up picking up holes in what he's doing. Um, he's not as high up the pitch, and he himself can be. Um, he's very passionate, but he can it can can get a little bit lost in himself sometimes. And I just wonder if in, if if he didn't have as much of that to worry about it might yeah. free up his mind a bit more going well, forward. Well, also, like, he'd be between the posts, you know, like, he'd be in the position where he could affect the most potential damage. And I don't know, just, yeah, it seems such an, an, an odd thing to me. I guess, it, 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 look, if they're trying for more solidity in the middle, if they, uh, if you know, if they want the, the 10 to drop back and make a midfield three and, and ground players out in that area, it sort of makes sense. And I, but another way of looking at it is, as you're describing it, Michael, like, the players on well theoretically the wing actually have more of a defensive duty than the the 10 does so it's all it's just always struck me as odd and would that did you ask him in the end or is that is that a scary question to ask Daniel Funker why don't you do this better (laughs) no no I've I've, I've spent three years doing it even when they were going well Um, I think but I think what I did is I thought about it and I think um he in the championship he did still play quite central it's kind of probably what if I was to channel Daniel, um, he will talk a lot about that being Emmy's position because it's their base formation in terms of when they haven't got the ball. The reality is when they have the ball, he does spend a lot of time central. He really does. So it's almost irrelevant because they've, they're very fluid. And I think in the championship, he could spend a lot of time there and then affect the game. What I'm watching him now, and it was the case against Arsenal, there were three or four times where he drifts in inside central areas and the ball would bobble off his shin or he'd lose it. And, and so that that's maybe a result of of him still being quite young and yeah. the, the environment he's playing at. And, and again, probably back to the very start of this conversation, why if you plucked Emi Buendia and put him out in a side that was doing okay in the Premier League, I think he would, I think he'd absolutely flourish, which is um, which is sad. But I do think he's a, he's an interesting point, Emmy, now because obviously his future will be will be interesting, like a lot of them. But um, you know, the momentum stopped. Norwich have picked him up and, and really helped him flourish um, to a level where I think you know Norwich put faith in him when others weren't really sure. Um, so Emmy's probably you know unco- subconsciously got a decision to make in terms of how 
how he pushes himself on now or um you know whether it's just not gone very well and how he reacts to that be interesting yeah hey listen as depressing as it is it seems very likely that norwich are going to be relegated is that fair to say michael before i, uh, before I ask yes, my question it's, it's, it's when rather than if i can't yeah. even I, I, don't, I haven't got an argument to that <laughs> no, well hey it's a real shame um but the question i suppose i want to ask is that um from a financial perspective given what we've already discussed given the way that the club prepared for entering the premier league leaving it isn't going to be a particularly scary thing like it might be for other clubs who'd spent a lot of money right um and obviously when norwich are relegated back down to the to the championship they could expect to earn somewhere in the region of 100 million pounds with the parachute payments and broadcasting income from from this year i mean we're still to find out what what utility payments have to be paid back with the with the stoppage but there's there's money there to be spent well, what does that allow the club to do yeah i think um i think norwich should pop, you know you could you could make an argument for them being the healthiest club in the championship next year to, to be yeah. honest um which is which is good it's not going to get them promoted i think um financially i've got absolutely no worries i mean the, the, probably the biggest issue would be if you know joseph drumich is probably one of their bigger top paid players and he's got another year left on his contract and i'm I'm not really sure if he's going to be ripping up any trees in the championship based on this season, but we'd see. I think the bigger issue really is the baggage of this year. Um, it's so it is so hard to turn around from a losing mentality and then going into the championship where people just try and beat you up every week. I mean, there's obviously a little bit more to it than that as well. But you know, it's going to be so. You know, the, the players Norwich relied on in the in the, the first season in the championship, like Marco Stiepelman, Moritz Leitner. Mario Vrancic that they're, they're not going to be the same people this time around it, it, yeah. because of what's happened in the last 12 months so how that is managed by Daniel is going to be fascinating they've got they've got some fresh talent coming in I have no doubt they'll have um they'll, they'll have already done a good amount of work on who they want to to come in and I think that probably freshening up that there, there may be much more change in the team than maybe some supporters are are anticipating because it, it won't work necessarily to to rely on the ones who did it two years ago, and and they might not want to. They you know might not feel that, but then that that side isn't comparable to the one two years ago either. So, and all of the expectation will be on them as well. Um, you know, Norwich have to finish in the top six because that's kind of a mantra that the whole club is is now built on as part of their model. It's all that sort of psychological stuff really, and they probably putting it down to you know the usual cliches they probably will need a fast start because the the fans have that baggage as well and um yeah. you know they they're all the difficult things about when you get relegated but uh in terms of the peripheral stuff it's it's probably uh, as good as you're going to get what are your expectations for i mean i know we're jumping ahead almost a, a year but what are your <laughs> expectations for next season do you see norwich as a team if they can keep that squad mostly intact that can bounce straight back up or do you think there's more of a consolidation period no i think um i think the the current environment and the fact that they do have a, a really solid base if daniel can manage the situation well they should definitely finish in at least the top six next year if this is closer to where uh, Stuart weber is used to in terms of recruiting for his uh, for a for a squad then they should be able to run unearth a, a couple more players who who can really kick on and, and are hungry and then that sort of rejuvenates the squad itself so i i think they'll They'll get the business right, I hope. Um, who they sell, how much for, that's going to be interesting because we don't really know what the environment's going to be like. And although Norwich don't have to sell, I think they will look to that to help rejuvenate some of the squad. So, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, and the, the fans would certainly expect it, and they should really be capable 
of it it, it will be a, a fresh situation because the expectation will 100 percent be on them but um but likewise and i think it'll be interesting who goes down with them because i've always found that a, an interesting barometer you know if you if you're going down with yeah. some really strong clubs who are in a position to just kick back on like say say the two the two seasons newcastle have gone down you you generally look at them and go you know it's going to take a lot for you not to bounce straight back up and um <laughs> it again that that might be quite interesting with with the, whoever does go down with norwich and what kind of state they're in too because to be honest the three teams that get relegated they generally should be the 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 top three favorites to go up because they yeah. <laughs> the playing field isn't isn't level michael can we step back about a year um one of the things that came up in my um in, in my research fascinated me um what are canary bonds or what were they yeah, really interesting this. Um, so Norwich hadn't really done anything to their training ground since it opened in 1997, I think it was, or it might have been early 2000s, certainly a long time. All they'd really done is uh, had loads of porter cabins and um, mobile classrooms and what have you. And as things grew, bearing in mind EPP, EPPP and uh, the club's got a category one academy. So um, And Stuart Webber said that they kind of... Um, uh, urinated up the wall all their money from the Premier League um, before that because they'd spent quite a few years in the top flight obviously and a lot of money so um, yeah. one of the first things Stuart Webber came in even though they had to turn over the squad um, make up a shortfall of 40 million quid him and the exec committee at the club who were sort of getting their teeth into running it were adamant that they had to do something to improve the training ground so that they could attract better players than they were so just, just to update the club because the facilities weren't what they should have been so um one of the ways they came up of doing that was a kind of a crowdfunder it was it was an investment more than anything uh, opportunity really open to supporters but also open to investors uh, they ran that through a company called tifosi who helped stevenage um build one of the stands of their stadium actually and um what they did is they they launched it they want they wanted to use the money to build an academy building in its own right um then they could get rid of the uh mobile classrooms uh give the academy their own building and then also then improve what the first team had themselves um do redevelop the pitches as well some of that work i think they were already going to have to do because they've got six pitch pitches at colney and i think the back two basically head straight down a hill <laughs> so they wanted to level all that sort of stuff <laughs> up and um and you know norwich is a self-funding club so no director is going to put any money in if they need money to do some stuff, they've got to either sell a player or generate it somehow. So they came up with this idea. Um, they needed to raise two million quid from it as a minimum to make it happen through investors and supporters. Uh, I think they could invest a minimum of five hundred pounds. So it wasn't, you know, open to everyone. But by the same token, people could put a lot in if they if if they wanted to. If they raised three and a half million quid, that was sort of what they'd budgeted for. That was their target. So two million, it happens. Three and a half. Um, they'd be happy and they set a limit at five million because basically it was a loan that the club were taking up with supporters and they could only really work out a financial plan to repay five million quid over three years if it if they had a lot more they'd have been basically over leveraged in terms of what they owed and they didn't want to be in that position either and basically they raised five million quid before it opened up to the general public so they, yeah. they raised five million quid before um just through so people cool. registering their interests um and in fact delia i interviewed delia uh, right at the start of the season it was my first piece for the athletic 
and she said that they wanted to invest in it and they were actually too late because it was already oversubscribed <laughs> and you know, that's the majority shareholder um so uh and and it was i think a five percent interest rate back on on the investment over three years after which you'd get your money back it was an unsecured investment so the idea i don't know if every club could do this because essentially you're you're backing the club to still be in business in three years time because if, if they're not you don't get your money back there's no guarantee on getting it back so there's a degree of faith in that um, and again that's why the club limited it and so the preferential preferential rate in terms of investment it, it was a really good way I, I'd, I'd be surprised if it doesn't pop up more often although again with the uncertainty maybe of club finances it might prove a, a little bit trickier elsewhere but the first thing Norwich did when they got promoted um, because there was a 25% promotion bonus as well, um, which I don't think they were anticipating paying um, when they took it out. So everyone got 25% of their investment back. So that was a big chunk that came out of their first um, their first TV revenue check, I can tell you that. Um, but they also just paid it all back um, as soon as they went up because clearly they didn't want the debt. Once they had the facility to pay it back, it was it was uh, their prerogative to do it. So, so 5 million quid went straight back and they paid everyone back and it's like, thank you. And maybe we'll do it again because I think Norwich are eyeing up possibly redeveloping the, uh, the Jeffrey Watling stand, which is the smallest stand at Carrow Road. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to do that because they've basically sold out Carrow Road to 27,000 um, for, for years, probably about 20 years. So whether they revisit it in the future, I don't know, but um, you know, as a, as a success, uh, you struggle to think of anything better in terms of a, a crowd crowdfunding scheme. In a more figurative sense, Michael, um, you've mentioned that this is a, a Category 1 Academy. What's in it, I mean, or who is in it, more to the point, that um, that people in the footballing community should be aware of? Is there, any, um, is there a, another Todd Cantwell lurking somewhere within the... <laughs> well, that's a good question, actually, because I think um, with, with Todd... There's, uh, he, his journey was obviously long. He'd been at the club since, since 10 and he's now, what, 22. Um, and I think there's been a lot of change at the, at the academy over the last five, four years. And certainly Stuart Weber has, has tried, to, tried to make um, the progression from the academy into the first team a, a real facet of what the club does and that gap had always been quite difficult but probably not surprising because they you know were in the premier league for for quite a bit of that time um i think if you'd have spoken to someone about max aaron's three years ago i don't think anyone would have flagged him up as being this this great prospect um possibly not even jamal lewis just promising promising youngsters in a way so and also a lot of norwich's under 23s and under 18 sides now it has changed they've recruited players from other academies who have dropped out and they're now playing probably more than the ones who've been there a long time through a long journey and really flourished so i think um quite think, a few taken from luton's academy haven't there in the well past. It, it, exactly both max and jamal were, were luton players until they were 16. Um, ben godfrey wasn't really an academy signing because he was at york uh, city until he was 18. Um, obviously James Madison was nowhere near the academy I think some people sometimes think that that was the case uh, so um, at the moment say at Arsenal they had um, Josh Martin and Jordan Thomas two youngsters on the bench um, they've both been recruited in fact Josh Martin was at Arsenal until until a, a, about 15 months ago so there is a different take on that and that will be interesting over the next year or two because you know, some of those players will have been here enough of a time to start judging whether it's been working compared to say 
you know, Josh and Jacob Murphy, who were both at the club from the age of eight, I think, um, and came all the way through. And obviously the FA Youth Cup winners of, of 2013, a lot of those have been at the club a, a fair amount of time. So it does it does feel like a, a different dynamic. Um, a lot of the bigger prospects have probably been out on loan this year. So Isaac Thordvaldsen, uh, Icelandic youth international, he's quite highly thought of and he's been... He hasn't played a lot, but I think he's impressed, given he's still pretty young. He's impressed at Fleetwood. He's been on loan there second half of this season. He'd be in the playoffs um, uh, right now. So I think he's one that I'm going to be interested to watch because I kind of not realised how young he was. He, he's quite a, big and, and looks quite mature and confident on a pitch. Uh, Tony Spring it quite down the, the way. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of hope for him. But, I mean, you're talking about a 16-year-old and a lot of... A lot of years still to develop there um but i think um i think josh martin is the one who's probably closest to break, breaking into the side next year and then it's interesting because you've got you know two of norwich's january recruits or three three of them in well two two january recruits and a third who signed on a pre-contract and, and has joined um from july um sam mccullum Danel Sinani, who's a, a Luxembourg international, and uh, Melvin City, he's a 19-year-old uh, midfielder who's at Sochaux in, in Ligue 2. And as I said, Sam McCallum's 19-year-old left back, uh, left wing back who, who got promoted with Coventry. I mean, these are three three young guys, you know, a, a decent amount of money for Norwich, but probably most people wouldn't blink an eye. And they're almost the way that, that Norwich are developing. They're trying to pick these younger players before anyone um, sort of gets there first maybe maybe does it buys them a window before other teams would to then yeah. hopefully develop them on and sometimes it feels like Norwich's academy is actually developing players for elsewhere <laughs> it does feel a bit like that and then if they catch <laughs> one or two they will then end up in the Norwich squad so I think how that dynamic changes over the coming years is will be really interesting because it I don't necessarily see them following the success of having Jamal Todd and Max all coming through at the same time I think um I think they're doing things slightly differently, and I think that's probably how it will how it will play out. Hey, Tony Springit, that is a fantastic name. <laughs> can't fail with a name like that. You definitely can't. No. Hey, Michael, we've taken up loads of your time, um, but thank you so much. And, and I would also like to say that um, that unlike Mrs. Farman, I think Norwich is one of the best places in the world. So I don't know what she's talking about. Well, those who've been there, those who've been to the fine city, know it, don't they, Joe? Yeah. It stays in your heart. It really does. Uh, thanks so much for your time. And, um, you know, well, good luck to Norwich in the championship and also good luck to you on a, on a new circuit of stadiums next year, provided that you're allowed to, to travel. The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Thanks, guys. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> thanks, Michael. <laughs>